Thank you so much for this warm welcome here to Solel. Welcome back to Solel, a wonderful congregation. Um, and it's my privilege, my pleasure, it's an honor to help during Rabbi Linder's well-deserved sabbatical. And uh, when he asked me to help out, I don't have to tell you when Rabbi John Linder invites you to do something, how can you say no? <laughs> it's so nice to hear you again, Todd. Um, what a talented musician and uh, soloist. And uh, I have to tell you, uh, the CD that I have of yours is often a way that I prepare for holidays and for prayer. It's, uh, it lifts me up. Thank you. This is my first time on the Bima with Rabbi Langowitz, and I have to tell you how blessed you are. This, this, no, this, this young woman is so talented and has such an ease. It's hard to believe this is her first congregation. It is, and um, and the commentaries that she did during services tonight. It just brought us along from each part of the service to the next in such a beautiful, spiritually inspiring way. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure. That's the call to worship, isn't it? <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I have to tell you, in Minnesota, when um, we start services, we ask everyone to turn off their cell phones. And we say, if we hear the cell phone during services, we start all over again. <laughs> so, So there was an adolescent whose family was in severe economic difficulty. The boy knew it and uh, sought to do what he thought would help. So he sat down and he wrote a letter to God. In it, he asked God to send them $100 to help buy food and clothing. It was a nice letter, one that touched the heart and made you want to reach out to the boy and his family. That is exactly what happened when the letter arrived in the dead letter office in Washington, D.C. The clerk who read it was so moved by its message that he took $20 from his own wallet and mailed it to the return address. Well, after the boy had received it, he sent a thank you note to God in which he said the following, thank you very much for responding to my request. However, the next time you do, please don't send it through Washington. They took 80% off the top. <laughs> wow, um, it's a cute story. But so many theological conundrums. When it comes to God, our rational adult thinking helps us reject some primitive childlike conceptions that still pervade our culture. Yet we are of mind and heart. And the simple reflections that derive from our youngest awareness of a power greater than human remain a strong tug in our lives, especially when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, blows to our health, to our financial resources, and to our human connections. While we mature in our God thinking, the older we get, we often tend to emotional reaction 
and take a literal understanding of God and God's dealings with the universe. We often think that God is responsible for everything that happens to each and every one of us, every little detail. Those who have read Harold Kushner's powerful book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, know that this is inevitable, even to the most rationalistic thinker. It's not our fault that we perceive things this way at times. Our society teaches that attitude. Old movies, new TV shows, comedies, tragedies, soap operas, dramas, even variety shows have from time to time dealt with God and theological issues. We have movies like Heaven Can Wait, TV shows like God Friended Me or The Good Place. We smile when we think of George Burns in Oh God. One of my favorite flicks is Defending Your Life with Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks, a romantic comedy based on a view of the afterlife with quite a sophisticated theological premise similar to what we find in some Midrash and Talmud. But more often than not, we find a shallow, unsophisticated presentation or comment or anecdote, and it either amuses us momentarily or turns us off. We can't fault the media, though. It's not their job. They are there to entertain primarily and to sell products. The people around us also affect our perception of God. There are so many fundamentalist and simplistic theological preachers and teachers in our schools and neighborhoods that it is nearly impossible to remain unaffected by their philosophy. And on Sunday morning, as I prepare for my fantasy football games, Nice to be retired. My, my remote accidentally stops on some of the evangelical TV shows. Even those of us who consider ourselves sophisticated and beyond juvenile concepts and ideas find that there is some influence of it in our own thinking. When I was in rabbinic school, I occasionally watched Robert Schuller's Hour of Power to observe a fine preacher who had dynamic homiletical skills. And how about Joel Osteen? While we may not agree with their theology, certainly not the divinity of Jesus, we cannot help but be impressed with their ability to communicate. It's also quite easy to explain things that way. It solves the problem of having to delve deep into our own minds and to pursue heavy and sometimes painful thoughts. Most often, we don't have the time or energy to engage in mind-boggling theological dilemmas. It's not high on our list of priorities. There's another source of difficulty that apparently teaches us to believe simplistic notions about God, or so it seems at first. The Bible, the Torah portions often present enigmatic situations that can be embarrassing to an enlightened modern-day thinker. We apparently have such a problem in this week's Torah portion a difficulty pointed out to us by a phrase appearing and repeated in our Torah portion. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The opposite of what we've been doing tonight by softening up our hearts. If the Torah tells us that it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart, then it was really God who was responsible for the Israelites' suffering. It was God who did not let them leave Egypt. Perhaps we can assume that if God had not hardened Pharaoh's heart, then the Pharaoh might have let the Israelites go. It's a great question. 
echoing its puzzle through thousands of years of thought, debate, and discussion in our text, our commentaries, our interpretations. This question has been asked throughout Jewish tradition by rabbis in the Midrash, by biblical scholars throughout the ages. And so we have a wealth of material in which we can search for some Jewish answers. One of the easiest approaches to a solution has been to rephrase the text or to translate it so that the meaning is not offensive. For example, instead of God hardened Pharaoh's heart, we could read it to say, God allowed Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. That is, God created the possibility that Pharaoh could harden his heart toward the Israelites. But it was Pharaoh indeed who chose to act on that possibility. That sort of lets God off the hook. How about retranslating it to read, God firmed up Pharaoh's resolution. Pharaoh had already chosen to be evil. Didn't the Pharaoh, long before God hardened his heart, already call for the killing of all the male children? God merely accented it, or used the bold key and italics on the divine keyboard in order to make it very clear what was happening. In fact, if we look at the beginning portion of the story, we find that through the first five plagues, it says nothing about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It says, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Not a mention of divine intervention. After five experiences, after five warnings, after five plagues, it was quite apparent that Pharaoh was resolved to subjugate the Israelite people. It was clear that Pharaoh was wickedly resisting the actual will of God. And it was manifest that he was of such a heathen and wicked nature that there was no way that he would change his character. My teacher, Hanan Bripto, Lava Shalom, called it moral inertia. Pharaoh chose his, his direction, and those choices again and again propelled him in a direction from which there was no turning back. The wicked, as Rashi, our medieval biblical commentator, points out, find no spiritual satisfaction in setting their whole heart to return to God in repentance. It was therefore better that his heart be hardened, that God firm up Pharaoh's resolution to show people what can result from it. A handy and useful analogy could be to see Pharaoh's actions as being like the sound coming out of a speaker. What God did was merely to serve as an amplifier, turning up the volume. That was the hardening of the heart. Another way of understanding this action attributed to God is to see it as a simile. It was clear after five plagues that Pharaoh was not going to alter his decision. He was a madman, blinded by his passionate desire to subjugate the Israelite people. It was as if God had hardened his heart. There was such a strong force compelling him to act in the way that he did. It was like a force as powerful as God. In one of the midrash, midrashim connected to this text, the rabbis claimed that this force was not the force of God, but that of an evil spirit, one Abizithabad, whose purpose in life was to harass the Israelite people by making life miserable for them. He was the spirit who hardened Pharaoh's heart during the plagues. 
And he was also responsible for making Pharaoh pursue the Israelites across the Red Sea. The rabbis tell us not to worry about this Abizithabad any longer, for he accompanied the Egyptian party into the Red Sea and was drowned along with them there, where he's kept prisoner under an underwater pillar, if you can picture that. I'm relieved. Now, I did not say that we did not have our share of simplistic, literal thinking in our tradition. My teacher, Rabbi Hanan Brichto, also used to ask us, do you know the difference between religion and superstition? None of us would dare raise our hands. We knew he was baiting us. And he would come back and say, the difference between religion and superstition is that we think that superstition is the other guy's religion. <laughs> Another explanation takes the literary route. The phrase, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, can be understood merely as an expression, not to be understood in its literal sense. After all, many languages have such phrases with God's name involved. In English, we frequently refer to acts of God, hurricanes, tornadoes, forest fires, traffic fatalities. They merely refer to events that are seen as being beyond our control. And so we carelessly attribute them to the Almighty. It's another easy way out. Now the Romans had an axiom. Who the gods wish to destroy, they first make mad. The surest road to destruction is self-destruction. And that begins when a person loses his or her calm, cool, collected self and goes mad so to speak. The Romans phrase, whom the gods wish to destroy, they first make mad, merely reflects an age-old bit of psychology. Give a person a rope long enough, and he or she will hang from herself. That takes place when you lose your reason and rational view. In our Torah portion, it's obvious that Pharaoh's policy was doomed to failure. And still, he insisted on following it through. Pharaoh was a man going mad. He had lost his perspective. His heart was hardened. And it became more and more incredible that Pharaoh would continue. He did. And so, in a way, God was involved. For by Pharaoh's actions, he illustrated whose side God was on. In his stubborn refusal to heed the plagues, God served uh, Pharaoh served God's purpose to show that God is on the side of freedom. Stubbornness, that's what the hardening of the heart is all about. In being stubborn, Pharaoh closed his eyes to reality. In a sense, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. For God had created him, as we all are created, with the Yetzer Hara, the inclination to evil, including the act of stubbornness. But God also gave Pharaoh the ability to overcome this evil inclination. For Pharaoh was a human being, and as such, like all of us, had the gift of free will and the Yetzer Tov, the good inclination, which he could choose. He could have chosen to act out his good inclination, to recognize that it was wrong to enslave a people, to take away their humanity by making them his slaves. It may be human nature to be stubborn, to continue to act in a consistent manner in our dealings with others. Moral inertia pulls us in that direction. It is easy to roll along a highway, picking up speed, 
than to have to shift gears and turn to another direction. It takes a lot of effort to change, a lot of self-discipline. It takes the ability to admit that there may be something wrong with our present behavior. That is difficult for anyone to see, even Herschel. But just as God endowed us with human nature that leads us in negative directions, we could call that the hardening of the heart, God also endowed us with the human potential for greatness, for change. We have free will. Nobody has to make decisions for us. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, an expression that can cause us some difficulty, some embarrassment, unless understood in its proper context. Answers may not come as a result of writing a letter addressed to God. It's quite easy, we learn from that anecdote and from our Midrash, to ascribe everything to God and abandon the search. It is much more satisfying to seek deeper answers ourselves, using our Jewish tradition as a teacher and guide. And after all, that way, we don't lose 80% off the top.